Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we have our interview with Ian Vasquez. Ron, how's it going? Going great, Ed. I always look forward to having Cato on. It makes my day. Yeah, it does. As I was saying before we started recording, they, they will are free to opine on lots of things, which we love. It's also always a free-flowing conversation. But let me uh, read uh, Ian in so we can get right to the meat and heart of our conversation today. Ian Vasquez is the Vice President for International Studies at the Cato Institute and Director of its Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He was a weekly columnist uh, in Peru from 2014 to 2020, and his articles have appeared in newspapers throughout the United States and Latin America. He's been on CNBC, NBC, C-SPAN, CNN, Telemundo, Univision, Canadian Television, NPR, Voice of America, and he can now add Voice America to his list discussing foreign policy and developing topics. He has received his bachelor's degree from Northwestern, his master's school from in advanced international studies from John Hopkins, and he is the co-author of the Human Freedom Index, which will, will be mostly the subject of our conversation today. He is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and is a member of the Mount Par- Perlin Society. So those of you with your tinfoil hats, get them out. You know, So we can start blaming the Council on Foreign Relations for everything. Ian Vasquez, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thanks very much. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> well, let's get to, I want to talk about this, the Human Freedom Index, which has been around for quite some time, I think over a decade now at this point. Is that right? We, we're in our eighth edition. It's an annual. Eighth edition. Report. Okay. Eighth edition. Close to, close to decade. All right. So let's, talk, let, let, let's start with this question. What is the Human Freedom Index? The Human Freedom Index is the, the only global measurement of economic personal and civil liberties uh, of its kind. It's an it's a index that gathers together 83 different indicators on personal and economic uh, freedoms for 165 countries, and we measure as much as, they, as we can over the course of two decades. So the, the latest report covers from the year 2000 to 2020, and the goal of this is just to have a sort of an empirical measurement of Freedom. I think that what we accomplished then is to give a reasonably accurate picture of freedom around the globe and within countries. And it's a mix of subjective and objective, isn't it? I mean, I guess the question is, how does one measure freedom? It seems very subjective. Well, that's right. Everybody has their own definitions of, of freedom. I like to say that George Bush has had his and, you know, Al-Qaeda had theirs and Hugo Chavez had theirs <laughs> Liberty and freedom are words that are tossed around uh, in very different ways. We have our own definition, and it's it's quite simple. It's the absence of coercive constraint. The idea that you can live your life the way you want as long as you respect the equal rights of others. And so, using that as our as our guide, we measure all of these uh, different indicators. A lot of them are actually hard indicators, subjective, like 
tariff rates and uh, tax uh, rates, that kind of thing. On the economic side, it's a little bit easier to, to do that because the hard data is there. Uh, other things like freedom of the press or freedom of assembly um, are harder to measure. And in all of uh, what we do, we follow a methodology that relies on third parties that are credible and that are authorities. And so we use data from the World Bank or from uh, the, the Committee to Pre Protect Journalists or from the United Nations and so on. And yes, some of that requires there to be some sort of um, uh, measurement by those agencies. And, uh, you know, they do the best that they can and they try to follow their own criteria. But there is some element of subjectivity when you measure things like the rule of law. So um, the approaches that are taken by serious organizations are oftentimes to rely on surveys of experts or come up with a criteria to, to judge um, freedom of the press in a country. You can look at uh, press killings or press jailings or things like that and, and, and come up away with a way of measuring it. Indeed, we, those are indicators that we do use in our index. Um, and quick sidebar, we had a previous guest, his name is Rory Sutherland, and he's got a saying where he says, a measurement is inversely proportional, or the value of a measurement is inversely proportional to its ease of measurement. <laughs> so I'm just wondering if, you've, if, if that's something that kind of jives with what you're finding. If it's easy to measure, yes, it, but it's not quite as useful as the stuff that's harder to measure. <laughs> well, um, you know, uh, I hadn't thought of it that way, um, that that could be true, although, you know, it's pretty easy to measure some things like I say, the size of government uh, spending and tax rates and so on in the way that we do it. And we find that that's extremely useful. So I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if I would make such a generalization. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Just a, a connection point there. Well, um, the 2023 report, I believe, is the first report that includes the year 2020. Obviously, COVID-19 is affecting. And you also extended it back from 2008 to 2000 for the first time. But, but COVID-19 was absolutely devastating to human freedom. Did, did I have the, see this right in the report? 94% of the world's population saw a decline in freedom? Yes, uh, that, that was one of the findings from, from the report. And uh, so basically what we find when we look at the, those two decades is that you get a global picture of freedom um, rising from the year 2000 up until around the year 2007. And that's a relatively high point for, for global freedom. And then um, it starts a slow decline, a gradual decline, but it's notable. And uh, of course, that coincides with the financial crisis, with the rise of authoritarian and other types of populism and nationalisms around the globe. And then in 2020, it just falls off a cliff. If you look at a graph of freedom, it just falls off of a cliff. And so the, it's not just the scope of freedom uh, falling, affecting, uh, as we found, 94% of the world's population, but also the degree by which it fell, setting the world back more than two decades in terms of of freedom. And um, we don't have the data yet after that, because the nature of international data is that there's usually about a two-year lag in order to compare uh, like to like. And uh, I think um, there will be some sort of a bounce back. Certainly, we're freer today than we were in the dark days of COVID. But uh, it's probably fair to say that we're not as free as we were in January of 2020. And so 
Um, when we say that that the COVID was a catastrophe for human freedom, what we're talking about is uh, that it affected so many people and that it affected so many areas of human freedom. We have 12 broad areas of human freedom and the majority of those uh, were negatively affected. Yeah, I think I did a quick scan of the the, the the chart that lists everything. And it's the first country that had an uptick in human freedom was Bhutan. And that came in at 86th. <laughs> that's... Well, that's right. I mean, almost, uh, almost every country saw a fall and there were some exceptions, but they, they weren't notable. There were small increases, but these are kind of like Venezuela. Venezuela was already on the floor. So, it, you know, uh, nowhere to go but up really, so to speak you know i don't think yes it affected them but their freedom was already on the floor and so um we can't really we can't really identify countries that, that uh be, became notably freer during that time at all um one thing just cycling back to to the measurement putting the report together um just curious how, how do you account for say the differences especially with regard to COVID policy within the states in the united states because there was a, a wide swath there so what what we do is provide essentially a thirty thousand uh foot view of what's going on in every country we can't get into such minute detail because what we're doing is comparing countries on the same basis with other countries and that also makes us depend on international data that does that, uh, you know. So we have comparable data for countries on tariff rates uh, or on freedom of speech uh, issues. But they're national, uh, they're national scores. They're not uh, scores that uh, get down to the difference between Ohio and uh, Minnesota. Uh, and that's true of all the countries that we look at. But one thing for the United States was it was a huge uh, decline, uh, went, went from, to, down to 23rd, dropped seven places in the index from the previous year. That can't be all COVID related. It was that there's, there had to be other factors that were involved. Can you kind of give us a, a percent? What was, was COVID related? What was not COVID related? Well, I mean, uh, no, I, I can't really because that's that's kind of hard to tease out. And, and mm. um, what we're doing is just measuring the same things we were measuring for the 20 years previously. We weren't saying, and this is a specific COVID uh, policy, even though we know that uh, freedom of movement suffered greatly uh, in a lot of countries. And that was definitely because of, of COVID. Um, we we think that a lot of those policies suffered because of, of COVID, but um, we don't, we don't uh, specifically look at a COVID policy and then downgrade a, a country. One thing that we can say is that um, global freedom was already on the decline. And so in a lot of cases, what we saw was that the pandemic accelerated trends that were already occurring. I think that that's certainly true in the United States as well. One example of that is what free speech scholars uh, had termed the free speech recession, where free speech has been coming under threat in, in a large part of the world, including the United States. And uh, with the pandemic, it really took a, a big hit. Uh, same with uh, freedom of assembly. Freedom of movement took a gigantic hit, but that wasn't an example of a longer term trend that was accelerated. So 
The United States, um, as you just mentioned, is a country that maybe unlike some of the other countries has been on a, uh, certainly of the freer countries has been on a longer term, more notable decline in, in freedom. And um, first off, that was led uh, by the decline in economic freedom beginning at around the year 2000. The United States used to be at the very top, top three, four uh, in the economic freedom rankings. And then it just, in its rating, just started a long-term decline. When the financial crisis hit, it, uh, every, every aspect of its economic freedom indicators, and there's, there's broad indicators there, every one of them saw a continued decline. And then it started to recover a little bit at the end of the Barack Obama administration, at the beginning of the Trump administration, and then it started to fall again, but it never recuperated its level of freedom. So in the year 2000, according to our Human Freedom Index that measures overall freedom, the United States was ranked sixth. Today it's ranked uh, 23. Wow. Well, Ron, when I pick up on this, I know I'm going to ask you a couple more questions in the third segment, but we are on our first break. I want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We'd love you to go out and rate this podcast. You can do that by going to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Ian Vasquez, and he's the Vice President for International Studies and Director of Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. We're talking about the Human Freedom Index of 2022. 
And Ian, I have a question for you. Um, I, and I may be conflating your report with another one on economic freedom, but Singapore seems to have really gone way down in the past eight years or so. Am I right about that? Weren't they always kind of up in the top five or six? Well, let me, uh, before I answer that question, I should clarify um, that this report, the Human Freedom Index, is a report that we co-publish with our friends at the Fraser Institute. And um, I should say that uh, for many years, beginning in the mid-90s, the Fraser Institute published, began publishing the, their annual Economic Freedom of the World report, which is an economic freedom index. I think that's the one and, I'm thinking um, of. Yeah, I think that that's what you're you're thinking of. Um, and um, I would have to take a look back at uh, at Singapore's ranking in that area, but I I believe that it's it's still retained a, a high ranking uh, in that area. What you're thinking about is. That, it, that Singapore is one of these odd countries in the Human Freedom Index where it has a high ranking in economic freedom, but in personal freedoms, it doesn't. Uh, uh, there's, there's fewer of those. And that pushes down Singapore's overall freedom score. So I think that you're comparing its overall freedom score with its economic freedom uh, score. And that's, that may be what you, what you have in mind. But to just go back to the Fraser Institute's great work on economic freedom, um, we used to have meetings that Fraser would put together because in the United States, we are the co-publishers also of that economic freedom report. And so we would have meetings with think tanks around the world involved in that project. And sometimes uh, Milton Friedman would be involved, would, would show up at our meetings, the great economist. And at one point he said, you know, you guys should go beyond economic uh, freedom uh, ratings and measure overall freedom. And at the time, we just kind of looked at him and moved on to the next topic because it wasn't really possible back then. Uh, it was only in subsequent years, much after his death, uh, years after his death, in fact, that um, it became possible because that data started to be compiled. There were more and more indexes that looked at things related to, say, women's freedoms or freedoms of assembly and, and that that kind of stuff. So then we got a group together with the Fraser Institute to see if we, if we could do this or not. This is the result, the Human Freedom Index. Right. And I should just mention for everybody, the number one and two countries are Switzerland and New Zealand. What, what stands out about those two countries to you? What stands out is that they rank high on both personal and economic freedom. And so the countries that are at the top of the list are very free all across the board. Um, and that's, that's the main thing. And, um, you know, uh, people sometimes ask us about, uh, political freedom, which we think is important, but we're not, we're not measuring political freedom. We're measuring personal and economic freedoms, uh, because we know that under democracy, you can see your freedoms go down. You can see your freedoms go up and we want to, we want to actually just measure freedom and in that way, we can more carefully look at the relationship between freedom and uh, human freedom and political freedom or any number of other uh, political or social phenomena. And uh, of course, we did that. And we found that there's a, there's a strong correlation between freedom and democracy. But um, that relationship is more complex than just a 
you know, straightforward correlation. I also found it interesting <clears throat> that the United Kingdom has slipped to number 20. I mean, they're above us, but th they've been going down too, haven't they? Yep, that's right. And, um, and uh, I, I think that, uh, I think that they, sh they should be worried in the same way that, that Americans should be worried. Because, of course, the United Kingdom is also one of those countries that everybody considers as one of the free countries. You know, it's part of this. Um, it's, it's, the, it, it's, what, uh, it's the motherland of the United States, and people associate it with, with the United States. I, we, as Americans, and in much of the world, think of the United States as a bulwark of, of global liberty. I don't think we can say that anymore. I mean, yes, the United States is still relatively free compared to the rest of the world. But, you know, I think that Americans think of the United States as number one in a lot of things, whether it's true or not. In terms of freedom, it's not true anymore. And we should be concerned about that. It's also bad for the world. Couldn't agree more. Wow. Uh, that's why we have you on. <laughs> we are. I am concerned about this. Um, you also point out, and this is fascinating, the unequal distribution of freedom in the world. Only 13.4% of the world's population live in the top quartile of the ranking, almost 40% in the bottom quartile. That's right. And I think it's something like 75% of the world's population lives in the bottom half. So this is a really unequal distribution of freedom. And why does that matter? Well, first of all, freedom matters because it's inherent, it has inherent value. You know, we, we want to, to have autonomy over our lives. We want to be able to say and think and do what we want and respect the rights of others. But also because, and this is also another finding of, of the report, freedom is strongly associated with human well-being and with progress and with indicators of human well-being that go beyond mere indicators of prosperity and I say mere indicators as though it's not important. That is extremely important. There's a strong relationship between human freedom and prosperity. The countries that are more free are much richer than the countries that are less free, even if they're only a little bit less free. The, the, the second quartile, if we divide it up in, in different quartiles, is much less free than the top quartile of the human freedom index. But it goes beyond that. Uh, uh, almost every indicator of human well-being is st strongly associated with, with freedom. So um, freer countries have better access to safe drinking water or uh, longer, long, you know, more longevity or uh, lesser uh, infant mortality rates or maternal mortality rates. You can look at uh, hundreds of indicators of human well-being, including international conflict, um, uh, things that you won't don't typically think of casualties in war, that kind of thing. And freedom has a strong connection with higher standards of living and human progress. And uh, so the more that you have freedom, the more you, you progress in that direction. That's why I think that it is uh, much more important to look at the inequality of freedom than it is to look globally at the inequality of, say, income, because after all, there is a reason why some countries are poor and some countries are richer. It has to do uh, very much with freedom. And if freedom is not equally distributed, that's the, 
That's the major source of, of the problem. And that's where you should be looking rather than um, wealth disparities a, as a path to redistribution of wealth on an international scale, which in and of itself doesn't work very well. Wow. You just anticipated my next question. I, I was going to ask you if the unequal distribution of wealth that some people claim about is actually driven by the unequal distribution of freedom. And shouldn't we be more concerned about that? Because that's the ultimate cure for yes. poverty is the creation of wealth. Yes, um, that, is, that is what this report strongly um, suggests. I think that that is absolutely true. And uh, so when we think about the right policies and institutions and even principles and values of the country, uh, in order for there to be progress, in order for there to be more wealth, I think that you can think of a general set of rules and institutions, openness, um, rule of law, uh, low, relatively low crime, um, uh, voluntary exchange, respect for, uh, you know, personal freedoms. When you have that, you can advance. So there's a sort of a recipe, if you want to put it that way. The problem is that it's one thing to say, we know what works. It's quite a different uh, thing to say, and I don't think you can generalize, about how to get from point A to point B in different countries. That part is, there's no one answer to. It depends on the country's particular circumstances. And um, a lot of countries have taken different routes to get from point A to point B. And to do that is, I think, more of an art than, than a science, even if you know what, what you want to get to. Right. I'm just curious, Ian, if, if any other causations or correlations, I know causations sometimes are hard to tease out, strike you about these reports. Do you see something that you think, hmm, that's interesting, that there seems to be a causation between these two variables or a correlation at least? Anything like that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that um, on the on the economic freedom side, we've had data uh, on that for several decades now. We've only in recent years have had more complete data on other human freedoms. So that means that there's been a lot more um, research and economic uh, literature uh, on that. So we, I've just been reporting correlations, but the the uh, academic literature ha- abounds with that that question what is the causation here and overwhelmingly the academic literature says more economic freedom is what causes growth prosperity greater investment and so on and we are now encouraging and starting it's just sort of just a new thing going on now among researchers the broader look of other freedoms and their impact on human progress you know, we talk about this report every year that it comes out, but you live it and breathe it and follow up on the aftermath. What's the media take on when it reports on this report? Are, are you satisfied with it? Because the narrative doesn't seem to be getting out there about well, what you just mentioned. Yeah, I think that uh, this kind of uh, report uh, that is really a reference work and uh, this this year may have been a little bit different because because from one year to the next there was a big difference which which was COVID. Um, 
Uh, usually it takes several years for this to percolate. And so we have seen mentions of it in The Economist and in The Washington Post and so on um, favorably, but also as a reference work. You know, uh, according to the Cato Institute, the region in the world that is the least free is the Middle East and North Africa. And Muslim majority countries are the least free and they're becoming less and less free. That's an important finding. So factual stuff um, helps to... Um, inform reporting. And I think that that, that itself is, is actually important. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Well, Ian, this is great. Thank you so much. Uh, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to ask TSOE at barrisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel, which you can subscribe to and get bonus content. You can do that at patreon.com slash TSOE. That channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. More minds meld at 90 minds. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercial commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it want to see what voice america is up to behind the scenes follow us on tiktok at voice america talk radio We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are back on The Soul of Enterprise, and Ron mentioned our Patreon channel before he went to break. I also want to remind you there that if you get at a certain level, you can get a shout out like Geraldine Carter did. Her business strategy for CPAs podcast is available at GeraldineCarter.com. Uh, we have with us today the author of the Human Freedom Index Report for 2020, Ian Vasquez. And you know, I wanted to take it a little bit more to some of the specifics now. We talked earlier in generalities. Tell, talk to us a little bit about the special case in Hong Kong of what's going on there. Yeah. Well, as we all know, um, the, Hong Kong has uh, – has, uh, really come under attack by by Beijing and the Communist Party in mainland China, mainly uh, 
uh, its autonomy has been uh, ended and its freedoms have uh, have uh, come under threat and been, been reduced as uh, mainland China takes over uh, there. And uh, the story of, of Hong Kong, of course, is is very dramatic because it's a story of the triumph of, uh, of freedom. In the middle of the 20th century, it was one of the poorest, uh, you know, it was an extremely poor place on par with West Africa. And then um, they implemented a system of uh, the rule of law and voluntary exchange and free trade and uh, that kind of thing. And it became a very successful um, place, becoming uh, more prosperous than Great Britain itself, which was, of course, the UK was its, its colonizer. And then there was a handover in 1997 and for the most part, uh, the, the Chinese government uh, respected the, the system in, in Hong Kong, even though it was um, the most economically free country in the world, a free place in, in the world, according to, to our index, and one of the freest overall places. I mean, they had a, a, a wide re- respect for personal and civil liberties and a very strong rule of law. All of that were legacies of the uh, colonial administration. And um, in recent years, once Xi Jinping became president in, in uh, China, the crackdown that uh, he began within China was extended to, to Hong Kong. And so those, those uh, liberties in Hong Kong started to come under threat. And in uh, July of 2020, of course, they imposed a national security law, which in practice ended the autonomy of, uh, of Hong Kong and um, took away basic liberties of, of the Hong Kong Chinese. So when we look at our human freedom index, Hong Kong was number three in about uh, 2010. Then it's, it started to go down and it, it really accelerated in its, in its fall. In the year 2020, we have it ranked as 34th and you might expect it to have been ranked a lot lower. But remember, in the year 2020 was also the year that all countries fell because of COVID, right? So what was happening in Hong Kong is what was happening in a lot of places with authoritarian regimes. COVID was used as a pretext to crack down on, uh, on freedoms. I think that what we're going to see is that as the rest of the world sort of recovers a lot of their freedoms from, that, from uh, the pandemic era, um, their ratings are going to go up. But Hong Kong's will not. Uh, and so the ranking of Hong Kong will go down. And I think it'll be a more accurate reflection of the loss of freedom in, in Hong Kong than uh, just looking at a pandemic year where the whole world uh, fell in freedom. So what's happened in, in Hong Kong is you see these big drops in, in personal and civil freedoms. Um, not as much yet uh, on economic freedom, but I think that that's not far behind big drops in the rule of law, big drops in freedom of association and assembly, big drop in freedom of, of expression. Um, we can't talk about uh, the Hong Kong being the freest place uh, on earth anymore. And it's clear that, um, that, that what's happened there is a tragedy. It's a tragedy from the point of view of the Hong Kong Chinese and also uh, from the point of view of freedom one of the great examples of what freedom and these classical liberal ideas can accomplish for uh, human for human beings and, and just how much 
it can do to promote human progress. Hong Kong was a shining example of that, and they're reverting that. And I guess at some point just gets subsumed at some point into China and you, in the report. I mean, that would be un- unfortunate, but, but a very possible outcome, right? Well, we're trying to avoid that because we think that, that Hong Kong is a very important case study. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we were always measuring it separately just because it, it was such an interesting case and because it had different rules. And um, so some people have made the case, well, now that it's just becoming an, uh, one more Chinese city, don't measure it separately. I, uh, what we, me and my co-authors uh, have decided is as long as the, our international sources continue to report data on that, we're going to do as much as we can to continue to follow um, what is going on with freedom there. Because, of course, it's cu- coming from a different starting point. It's one of the wealthiest places on earth. It's one of the most prosperous places with the high, one of the highest standards of living going in the other direction in the direction of China. And um, I think all of that is worth studying. What is the relationship between uh, the policies uh, and institutions of freedom with those kinds of outcomes? I don't think that we should just walk away from that. I think there's a lot worth studying there. No, it's a great, what what, uh, economists call a natural experiment, so to speak, right? right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and we can only hope that, you know, the, the thought that economic freedom leads to personal freedom will uh, eventually affect China, right? Because that was the belief. And, you know, it's always, always, well, that's what Milton Friedman thought, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. So well, that's right. I mean, that, that's also, so one of the findings in our report, which I think is an important finding, is that there's a strong relationship between economic freedom and personal freedom. Uh, so you, one way of saying it is that if you want to live in a country with a high level of personal freedoms, you know, the rule of law, freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of speech, and so on, you better pick a country with a relatively high level of economic freedom. And um, that's another way of saying that if you value freedom, don't just focus on one kind of freedom, freedom of the press or whatever it is that you like. You, you really need to, to take the whole package because they reinforce each other. And economic freedom is very important. As they, as they say, the control of the economy is the control of life itself, which is why dictators like to, to, to control, to, to reduce economic freedom. And when you increase economic freedom, it, it increases overall freedom because you have more autonomy in your life. And we've seen that pattern happen all over the world um, with uh, authoritarian regimes that have started to liberalize economically, then they, they end up increasing their levels of, of personal freedom and then eventually also um, democratizing. So they end up with political freedom. We saw that in Chile. We saw that in Mexico. We saw that in South Korea and uh, Indonesia and Taiwan and so on. And that certainly was the hope for China, as you said. Um, I think there's no doubt that the Chinese are... Inf- vastly more free today, even today, than they were in the 1970s. Um, and then uh, in the late 70s and 80s, the, the big reforms began. Uh, they're freer. They're much more prosperous. The problem is that they're, they're reverting uh, those policies now that the Communist Party is. And, um, and so some people have come to the conclusion that that pattern doesn't hold anymore for China. It was a mistake to trade with them and try to encourage that. You know, um, nobody ever said that we can 
to be deterministic about these things, but I kind of, uh, I'm sympathetic with the suggestion in your comment that yet, that hasn't happened yet, because I think it's too early. I don't think that China is such a governable place, you know, um, none of this suggests that it's an easy path and that there may not be some crises along the way. Things are not going well in China right now. We don't know how long that'll last, but you know, um, humanity, countries have a way of creating unexpected things. And, uh, and I, I just think that, um, that, uh, it's a premature conclusion to say, oh, this was a failure. You mentioned Chile, and uh, we got about two minutes left in this this segment. I know you've been paying attention to that as well, not so much from the Human Index Report, but what's going on with their government. I think there was a proposal to rewrite the Constitution down there, and and that I think went down at least to to, to the vote. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a sort of involved story, but basically you have the story of a, of one of the great economic development successes. Chile Chile was very poor, backward, repressed. It implemented far-reaching, uh, coherent set of, of economic reforms that moved in the direction of a market economy. And also, um, I think it's the first country where the actual reformers themselves set out to create a free society. It wasn't like what happened in Taiwan that made it rich, uh, partial reforms on the margin or just on trade or technical reforms. This was to create a freer economy uh, and a free society and it was it was very successful by almost any means so the big surprise was why in 2018 did they uh, have uh, riots and so on and violence and then vote in a far left uh, president and actually call for rewriting the constitution a constitutional assembly voting in far left candidates that controlled that whole process luckily that failed, but um, the story goes on, and we can talk a little bit more about that if you want. Well, we are up against our break, so perhaps Ron can pick it up, but he might want to take it a completely different direction. So we'll see what happens after after our break. I want to remind those of you listening that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Please also check out the Times Up Club. This is Ron's new book with Paul Dunn. We have uh, free chapter summaries, audio chapter summaries available at timesupclub.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors and my employer, Sage. told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book which totally makes sense like the diamond water paradox go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today please for the love of God make it stop the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back everybody we're here with ian vasquez and uh ian i want to tap into your international studies brain the ukraine the uh, ukraine russia war um you know, I heard Stephen Kotkin on another podcast, the great historian from uh, the Russian historian, say, if they take it, they can't have it. What, what scenarios do you see playing out in, in this war? Um, that's a good question. I think that uh, I think that it's kind of getting to be a, a stalemate, right? I mean, there is a limited um, appetite for engagement by the United States. We've I, I think it's fair to say that the Americans are sick of these uh, endless wars all around the world. And, and um, you know, it's no small thing to get involved in the face-to-face confrontation with a nuclear power. So we want to be very careful about that. Um, Europeans are closer to it and uh, are more engaged than you would have thought they would have been uh, before this conflict began, but less engaged than they probably should be. And so, um, there's, that has forced a rethink in foreign policy within uh, Europe, which I think has been good because they need to take on more of that responsibility. It's not 1945 anymore. They're, they're the wealthiest countries on the planet, comp- uh, along with the United States and some other ones. We don't have to be subsidizing them uh, on that. But what this means is, I think in practice, that there's, there's kind of a stalemate going on uh, right now. And so I think that this could drag on for a long time. And as long as one side or the other or both think that they can um, have an advantage for whatever reasons, they're not going to have an incentive to go to the negotiating table to try to come out with, you know, some sort of a peace plan and put an end to this. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about. I'm, you know, I know these analogies are imperfect, but Do you think that we're in a new Cold War with, say, China? I mean, I've heard another historian say that uh, Ukraine is is the Korean War, and if China moves on Taiwan, that will be like the Cuban Missile Crisis. In other words, this Cold War is being accelerated. Um, How do you see the posture with us in China? Do you see it as a Cold War? I see China, uh, the the rise of China as a global power, which is definitely what, what is going on, 
is transforming the world. It's also transforming societies and politics all around the world, certainly in the, in the United States. Um, you, I mean, you can't talk about politics in the United States without hearing about China this or China that. Um, so it's having a, a huge effect. Um, I, I don't think uh, that the Cold War analogy is an apt one. I don't think it's, it's a good one either. One of the reasons is because China is hugely engaged in the world economy, and it's not the Soviet Union of, you know, the 1950s, which was autarkic. Um, so it has a lot to lose from uh, disrupting that, and so does the rest of the world. So that's a big difference. Yes, it's become more belligerent. Yes, uh, Taiwan is a very tricky issue. Um, I think that the war in Ukraine might be serving, a, in fact, as a warning sign to, to, uh, to, to China because it didn't go so easily as Russia thought it would. They thought they would just march in and take it and so on. And the land war is going to be much easier than invading by sea and by air uh, an island like Taiwan. That is a much more difficult proposition. Um, and I think that the world, uh, China included, has seen how, uh, how the free world is going to respond to something like that. I don't know if that would include direct military engagement, um, but um, it's not a foregone conclusion that China uh, is going to invade Taiwan. It's not a foregone conclusion that because of the way things have gone in, in Ukraine, this is going to encourage uh, China to do more of it, uh, I think is more complex than that. In any event, um, we're still very much engaged with with China economically. There's a lot of investment going in, and it's engaged with the rest of the world, also diplomatically. Um, I don't think that the trade war that Trump started with them has been helpful. Certainly, it has hurt Americans. It has reduced their, their income, um, and the Chinese haven't really paid that cost. It's been paid by, by Americans. So we haven't come up, the United States has not come up with a good set of policies, either in the security area or in the economic area, in dealing with the great challenge of, of uh, uh, international relations right now. And okay, China causes me so much cognitive dissonance. <clears throat> On the one hand, I love the fact that they pulled so many people out of poverty. I'm against tariffs. On the other hand, I kind of hate what to see what they're doing to the Uyghurs and yeah. It's just a conundrum all the way around. It's a complex issue. In international affairs and in foreign policy, um, sometimes, you know, there aren't great answers. There are bad answers and less bad answers. Less bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Thomas Sowell, there's no solutions, only trade-offs. Um, I want to take you uh, to the 2% of the population that's not ranked in your human index report. Let's go to North Korea. Any insights on what may happen here with this country? I mean, do you, do, you ever, do you have any hope for a regime change or just something happening where maybe South Korea reunites with the North? Or I'm afraid I don't have any insights there. You know, I think that uh, one thing that we can observe is, you know, that's probably the most dismal place on Earth right now. I mean, maybe some war zones like in Yemen or parts of Syria, but... But um, as a country, it's probably the most dismal place on earth. And unfortunately, it's, it, it, sometimes 
you think that when things, when a regime uh, is in charge of a country and it's, it's a dictatorship, but it does a sufficiently bad job that people rise up against it and they get overthrown because of the inflation rate or because of some crisis after another. Um, and that's usually the case with, with countries, but there's a set of countries where that's not the case. And North Korea is one of them. They, they have such control. They um, have, um, you know, such a commitment to, to dig things deeper into the ground, no matter how much more misery they, they cause. Cuba is like that. Venezuela is like that. Zimbabwe is like that. Those are the kinds of countries where you think it can't get any worse than it does, and the regime holds on to power. So I, I'm sorry that I don't have a better answer uh, to, to that. I don't have any particular insights. I did run into Dennis Rodman uh, a few months ago by chance at the Marriott Hotel across the street from, from the Cato Institute, but uh, didn't get a chance to ask him about that. Uh, he might have better insights than anybody else. The uh, our unofficial ambassador to <laughs> Pyongyang. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you anticipated my next question. I wanted to ask you about Cuba because you wrote a blog post back in November of 2021 when they were doing those um, protests in the street all around Cuba and that hip hip hop song, you know, "Fatherland and Life," not not the regime's "Fatherland and Death." Um, yeah. You think the Cuban people will ever live in freedom? I would like to say yes. But you know, it's it's uh, it's like I say, it's one of those regimes that is it's a police state. It's very entrenched, and it it will inflict misery on people, at, which is what it did after the the rebellion, uh, the, the, you know, the big up, uh, uproar, the the unrest from a couple of years ago. Uh, it just threw hundreds and thousands of people in jail, and some of them are in there for just having walked on the street with the crowds uh, for 20 years. Uh, kids, um, they, this is a ruthless regime. Um, what's true about those regimes, though, is also that, that it's unpredictable what will happen. And because it's not transparent, nobody really knows, not even people who are the best informed people in Cuba or outside of Cuba really knows what is happening or what can make things change from one moment to, to the next. It, it, it really does create an unpredictable situation. But right now, it just doesn't look good. And what can be said is that uh, uh, the crisis in Cuba is getting worse. People's access to water, uh, access to food, just basic things are worse. The economic situation, the scarcities, the, the lack of electricity, everything is worse than it has been since the fall of the Soviet Union. It's in its worst moment. And I think that outside of Cuba, people don't fully realize that. There was an uprising in a city uh, last weekend in, uh, by Guantanamo, um, and it was cracked down on. So maybe there's other ones that we're not hearing about. Anyway, it's unpredictable. Well, Ian, have you ever been to Cuba real quick? Yes. Yes, you yeah. have. Okay. Yes, there are no communists in Cuba. Nobody believes in the system. Nobody. Excellent. Well, Ian Vasquez, thank you so much. This was an honor to be able to chat with you and stay with us for a live close. But Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to talk tax policy with Dan Mitchell. Right on. Excellent. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. 
sponsored by Sage. Building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. Thank you.